Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So today on the show, we are talking about face masks, and we are going to kind of dive into the details on face masks and protective coverings and the rest and try to just get an up-to-date and informed sort of state of the union of where we are with all this face mask stuff. So to that end, we have with us today from the company Outdoor Research, Alex Lover and Kat Shawi. And the reason that we are talking with Alex and Kat about this topic is because Outdoor Research has been doing a lot of very serious work in the personal protective equipment space. And that has translated over to what they are doing in terms of face masks and protective coverings on the commercial side of things. And so Alex and Kat do a terrific job of kind of walking through that whole space and how this is all working at Outdoor Research. And they also provide, I think, a pretty helpful overview on Outdoor Research in general about the origins and history of the company and what the company looks like today. And I suspect that there are quite a few of us who aren't actually all that familiar with the origins of outdoor research and sort of what the company looks like today. So I should also say here, we recorded this conversation with Kat and Alex on Friday, August 21st. And I just want to point that out because certainly it is the case that standards and the emerging science and all the rest, uh, as you all certainly know by now, well, these things are emerging and changing. And so I think it's right that you know that this conversation was the 21st of August. And honestly, at this point, who the hell knows what kind of standards or scientific discoveries we're going to learn going forward. So that is what we have on tap. We are talking about masks. And honestly, I think anybody who sits around listening to this conversation where we nerd out about sidewall materials and base materials and the rest on a pair of skis, well, honestly, we're now talking about kind of literally life and death issues. And so if you are nerding out about what kind of sidewall your favorite ski has, but then you're just kind of throwing on any old face mask uh, or buff, well, I think you should listen to this conversation because this, frankly, is simply more important. And then, as is our custom, we will wrap up this episode with our segment on what we're celebrating this week, and that's actually going to be a little bit of a different thing, too. Anyway, enjoy this episode. I sure learned a lot in this conversation. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Alex and Kat. Here we go. Well, I am happy to be joined by Alex and Kat today. Just to kick things off, Kat, why don't you first tell us what it is you do at Outdoor Research? Sure. So I joined Outdoor Research a little over a year ago, um, and my title here is as a creative design director. Um, I oversee the 
our internal design team on the commercial side. So that's designers that are designing, developing, and commercializing products for all of our apparel, outerwear, and accessories products that we sell through both our our website as well as um, to some of our retail partners. Got it. And Alex, what do they have you doing around there? I like to joke on the janitor, but that joke really doesn't go very far these days. Uh, I'm director of innovation, director of commercial innovation. Uh, and I, I really sit between two of the business units in the brand, the commercial side that Kat works on and also our tactical gov side, which allows me to sort of help be the conduit for uh, interesting projects or interesting ideas, materials, um, and even down to process things we can bring from one side to the other just to continual uh, push the sort of loop of improvement forward on both sides of the business. Um, I oversee materials. I work in sustainability. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a multifaceted. Every day is a little different kind of a role. Alex, what's your background? Like f- whether that's best answered in terms of formal education or you know books you were reading as a thirteen year old in your parents' basement or like how did you get into the innovation and materials game? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's definitely been an organic process. I have a degree in uh, apparel design production and development from Iowa State University. It's a sister program to the famous NC State program, which a lot of people continue to remind me. Uh, but it was, it was an interesting foundation, and I, I took an interesting path there. I didn't do creative design. I didn't really do tech design. Uh, I'm not an artist, so it came through me more of an engineering focus. International trade and international business was actually my um, secondary focus, so a lot of international travel focus. Um, so from there, I, I really joined uh, Cabela's, actually, of all places, which was not too far from where I used to live back in those days, and it got into the world of product management, and that's really where I spent a long time, and my interests were always in materials and sort of the nuts and bolts of making a product versus sort of the, um, the classic side of being a merchant. Uh, and then I found my way through various changes and moves with a, a lot of early emphasis on international travel. I was really fortunate to get that early. And I tell people that you can't buy that education. You can't read it in a book. You have to physically go spend time in factories. And that doesn't happen as often these days as it once did with the advent of we're on a video call right now recording a podcast. Um, when I came to Outdoor Research, I was the product manager of outerwear. And then uh, as the company continued to grow and realized that our materials an innovation team and sustainability needed a dedicated leader that could sort of further that as a special project, it opened up a really great opportunity for me. We're going to dive in here to sort of the topic of the day, right? Face masks and what in the world uh, we should be knowing about the differences among these things and sort of some best practices perhaps. But just before we get there, I think it might be a good idea to have you guys provide us just with a bit of an overview for those who might not be that familiar. Like, what is Outdoor Research? Or tell us about the company. Or I suspect that there are some folks out there who still primarily associate Outdoor Research with, like, gloves. So talk to us a little bit about you know, maybe the a bit about the history of the company and sort of bring us up to today. That's kind of a tall order, but um, you, you two are sharp, so. Yeah, it really is a tall order. Um, trying to put it into that fun 30 to 60 second soundbite is quite challenging. And there's a really great long story of the history of the company, but at a really sort of edited quick version, next year is our 40th anniversary. Um, we were founded by a gentleman named Ron Gregg, who was a nuclear physicist. Uh, and also a, a mountaineer and an alpinist and a climber. 
and he was up on Denali with a, a friend of his, a partner, on an expedition. The partner, as we've sort of learned, had a, a, an injury to his leg due to some subpar gear and had to be medevaced out. Uh, Ron decided to ski out, and during the process of, I think it's a seven-some-day ski out off the mountain to civilization, thought through how could he improve that gear, sort of a, the original solution-oriented sort of development, uh, and came home and made that product, and that's what really founded and sort of launched outdoor research. Um, he started a company, quit physics, although the sort of reckless scientist, the adventure scientist, not reckless, but adventure scientist, continued forward. Um, he died tragically in an avalanche um, many years ago, and the company was sold to um, Dan Nordstrom of, of the Nordstrom family, who himself is quite the accomplished uh, alpinist and adventurer, who kind of carried that ethos forward and sort of kept the factory running. All those products at the time were made in the United States. Um, Dan is still the, the, the CEO emeritus, is his joke, of the company, uh, but it was acquired in a majority share by Young One Corporation uh, a number of years ago who's a, a large leading multinational corporation uh, that builds some of the best outdoor gear in the, in the planet. And we're really fortunate to have Dan's experience, Dan's energy on, on the team still, but Young One brings a lot of manufacturing excellence, a big name, and frankly, in times like this with crisis, uh, a really nice base of stability for us. Mm -hmm. How do you do, Kat? He did great. The only thing I would add is that um, that spirit of Ron Gregg really continues to live on on our teams and, and in everything we do. Um, it's very much alive today in how we build product. So we applied that iterative scientific approach to every product that we build. We, you know, we um, test the living crap out of every single product. We're, we're continuously improving every product. And we do, um, you know, we do have um, that approach of looking at things from the outside the box perspective, that frustrated scientist approach um, in everything that we do. Sure seems like an appropriate time to talk to some producers of PPE about State of the Union. So I know that some months ago, we were hearing a lot about just a shortage of PPE. And I think that was, you know, specifically in for healthcare workers. And I feel like I have heard less about that today. And so I don't know, would you guys be able to weigh in on that? And wh where are we? Well, I think first we should probably say that there's a lot of differing opinions of what PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, means and Kat and I use that term, you know, quite broadly, meaning that it is intended for protecting an individual from something. And we we use some of our gloves, you know, on our military side. And you know, I, I go so far as PPE, and I would go so far as to say a rain jacket can be personal protective equipment in the right environment. So we use PPE as a very broad term, not specific to for medical applications. So if you hear us say that, don't at us that PPE is for is for medical. It's it is a broad term. Uh, honestly, I, I'm not sure we're the right folks to comment on the general sort of situation of the supply of PPE, but our general understanding is it's still in great need. Um, the interest in a domestic supply chain for those products is pretty intense. Uh, a lot of companies have been interested, especially in the early days, into making PPE, but very few made it to the approved medical device status. Both GM and Ford have been pretty publicized on theirs on the ventilator side. We're really the only outdoor company uh, in our space that's achieved the sort of official medical device accomplishment. Say more about that. Like, what does that mean? I mean, 
We talked to some brands some time ago that sort of quickly pivoted in terms of producing shields and you know cloth face masks, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing that's different here. Sure. It was a pretty quick conversation. It was very fast and very organic for us in the very earliest days of the crisis. Washington State was arguably one of the first hotspots in the, in the domestic United States. So we dealt with it earlier than anybody. And our status, um, you know, having making some products for the DOD and the government was probably going to be and did become an essential business. So we knew we had to do something not only for our own employees, but we wanted to help people. Uh, and the situation presented a pretty easy yes for us in that maybe for the first time in all of our careers, the company goals, which ultimately means revenue, um, community public health needs, and legitimate national security were all tied into one one pretty easy yes. So um, our tactical team is pretty used to government side, is pretty used to the quick solutions and quick timelines and turnarounds for specialized teams and needs. So it's kind of right up our alley. So we started with a cut and sew mask, meaning a fabric mask that you just produce um, that was not intended for medical use, but clearly was going to need to have a high level of performance to protect not only our customers, uh, but also our employees. Um, at the same time, we, we realized that that would be needed for our employees to continue work. And that ended up being a pretty good intuition. We needed some stuff because the supply chains of those higher level masks as we remember back, the N95s, you couldn't buy. So we couldn't get any to protect our staff. At the same time we worked on that, a core team of, of our uh, group started to immediately research and understand what was involved in making medical grade PPE. And medical grade is a tough term, so it's really medical intended use PPE. Um, so currently we are making an ASTM level three surgical mask and NIOSH N95 respirators in addition to that original mask. And that's just on our side. And then that was the genesis for the commercial mask. Yeah. So on the on the commercial side, what we did is when, when the tactical team developed what they call the Resolute mask, which is the cloth mask, um, we took those learnings and we embarked on a development of a more universal high performance mask for the commercial market. Um, and, you know, if you think back to what was happening in April when um, when we started this development, I mean, toilet paper shortages, hand sanitizer shortages, no N95 that you could buy on, you know, on Amazon or anywhere else. Um, Everybody I know was sewing their own masks. So my mother, my mother-in-law, all of my girlfriends, they were all sewing cotton two-layer pattern masks and sending them to friends and family, you know, or anyone that was working in a grocery store because there was no face covering out there for any consumers to be had. Um, and so at that point, very quickly, a lot of other brands also started getting into the into the face mask business, right? Many of them approaching it from the how fast can we do this model? And there was certainly a sense of urgency happening in, you know, in the market. And so that that how fast can we do this model for many other brands equated to cutting up excess fabrics into really simple two-layer masks with a piece of elastic, um, you know, and getting them out into the market as quickly as they could in order to cover people's faces and, and create a certain semblance of protection. We didn't really want to go that route. So we had a, a great start with the Resolute mask, which is a, a 
technical material mask that comes with a removable filter. This was the cloth mask that the that the tactical team was producing, and and this and still produces. But we wanted to build something that was high performance, breathable, versatile. You know, we're we're very much a performance brand. That's something that's in our DNA, and so we wanted to bring that into the mask market. Um, we definitely knew that we wanted to incorporate the amazing filters that we were producing in Seattle um, for a couple of reasons. One, they have incredible testing in, in filtering out 95 plus percent of virus and bacteria and particles. Um, and so just giving the, the commercial consumer something that, that really has great filtration and is protective. We had a great polyester warp net fabric that outperforms some of the cottons out there in the market. It's highly abrasion resistant. It dries quickly. It wicks moisture. So it's, it's very much a performance fabric that is pretty comfortable next to the skin and, you know, and can be worn on a daily basis, can be washed multiple times, does not shrink. So we knew that we had those two elements that we really wanted to incorporate into a mask for the, for the consumer market. We looked at a lot of different masks that were in the market and we were tested a lot of them. To go back to the, the example I gave about, um, you know, about us living Ron Gregg's legacy, we, we were on the trails trying out all sorts of different masks day after day and seeing what fits, what doesn't, what are some of the gaps in, in performance that we're seeing. And where we saw, uh, and, and also reading CDC guidelines that were out at the time and trying to improve that, that product. So, um, we, so we followed that iterative design method and, and created a mask that was a two layer fabric mask because of those CDC guidelines. And some of the most important issues that we were trying to solve for when we were building it was actually fit. Fit is something that, you know, that at OR we're very much known for. We spend a lot of time perfecting fit, um, for the outdoor consumer and we're lucky in the sense that we're headwear experts. Um, and so we're coming at it from a, from a, a brand that has expertise in fitting hats already. We have head forms. We have background in sizing things that go on your head. Um, and so building a, a great fitting mask was just the evolution of that, of that expertise. A lot of the masks that were out there, that were non-medical masks fit really poorly. They, they had gaps between the cheeks and the nose where air comes in and out. You know, that's, that's an area where, where obviously if, if air passes through it, then germs pass through it with it. The, the fit of the ear loops was also something that we noticed where if a mask fit one head, it didn't necessarily fit multiple ones because all heads are different and they are not, you know, it's, if you think about it, it's not, size dependent on you might be six foot tall and weigh 200 pounds and you might have a small head you might be 150 pounds and 58 and have a very large head so sizing is is not dependent on body type um, so we wanted something that was versatile and that would fit most heads and and so one of some of the things that we built into the mask that we built as as improvements were the nose wire that is fully adjustable so that it creates that really tight seal around your nose and prevents the air from circulating through above your cheekbones 
And then the adjustable ear loops that really fit most heads. We've tried it on hundreds of people and, um, and have been able to adjust it to the fit of, of multiple heads, which is really important. The tight seal and keeping the, the germs out is, is really part of the, the efficacy of the, of the mask. If you would have asked me to like think through what were the trickiest elements of the design, I probably almost certainly would have put fit last. <laughs> so it's probably good I don't design face masks. But we did initially. It was it was this was an interesting project holistically of things we didn't anticipate being a problem were the ones that were a problem. Huh. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, facial hair, no facial hair chubby cheeks, pointy noses. Um, the, there is such a variety of facial features and facial sizes. And so no, no two faces are alike. And hence, fit is a really important component. And if you look around you know, at, at people on the streets or in the supermarket, a lot of them are wearing their masks in a wrong way. You, you, they wear them with a large gap around their nose. Sometimes they wear them below their nose. And so the mask is actually not doing anything. Um, so making sure that the, while we're providing a product, we're providing a product that really does seal out the the air that's coming in and out as much as we can. Let's pause on that point for a second because this is something I imagine all of us have seen. I saw it, you know, I was just out a few minutes ago, saw it. The person who has the mask, but they're not covering their nose. Kat, you just said, I think you said that then drops all efficacy. But what, so can you speak to that in terms of like, Covering the mouth alone versus covering both the nose and mouth. Yeah, I feel like we should probably say we're not doctors. It's okay. I am, Alex. So I, I, I got us. Yeah. It's well, then you'll be the one that gets in trouble, not us. Oh, shit. Okay. I'm um, not a doctor. I was lying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to think of your mask a little differently, I think, than, than many. Kat and I are, are very fortunate. I mentioned earlier, I travel internationally a fair amount. Kat does too. Uh, we're, we're used to cultures uh, in Japan in Hong Kong and parts of China where mask wearing, especially if you're just sick, you're just ill, is very common and expected. So we've, we're more familiar with this in many, but you got to remember in many ways, and I, I referenced some of the you know other countries' use of masks under the guise of the mask is not simply to protect you. In many cases, and this is what I think America is getting a crash course in right now, you need to think about wearing your mask about protecting others. So I'm big on analogies, and the analogy I would use is sort of the sneeze analogy. You and I are face-to-face -face having a conversation and both of us need to sneeze. If, if I'm not wearing a mask, but you are, and I sneeze, I sneeze right into your face. All of my germs come into your face. If you're wearing a mask and sneeze, I don't get any of it on me. So if we're both wearing a mask and one or both of us need to sneeze, you're cutting down the risk of transmission dramatically. And you have to remember that COVID-19 is a respiratory-based illness, not unsimilar to influenza. So the highest risk, again, we're not doctors, the highest risk of transmission is those droplets that you're expelling through coughing, sneezing, laughing, um, just talking, etc. All are potential contaminants. So if you're wearing your mask, you're keeping your germs to yourself at an extremely high level. And that's, that's whatever mask you're wearing. Ours obviously is proven to be a much higher amount. It's less that someone else is sneezing and you walk through that cloud and because you're wearing your mask, you're protecting yourself. You are, but the predominant reason is because you're protecting and keeping things to yourself. Just literally last night, I saw um, an article posted 
Um, again, I mentioned this earlier, Washington was a pretty early hotspot and arguably was the first. So there's a lot of data coming out of our state in particular. And the local Washington state data was showing that um, they overlaid the infection rate with the statewide mask mandate and also with the here in Seattle specifically, but I think it's statewide, the no mask, no service order, meaning you're not allowed to go into a place of business without wearing a mask. They have to provide one, et cetera. If you overlay those three data sets together, it is an absolutely data point proven that the infection rate dropped dramatically when both of those pieces of legislation went into place. So, you know, again, there's there's all kinds of statistics and you can bend everything the way you want it. But if you simply look at those three charts, it's crystal clear that wearing a mask makes a difference. And it's a public health difference, not necessarily yourself. Kat just impressed upon us the importance of that secure fit. And I think that makes a ton of sense for everybody listening to this. But I am certain that there are many people listening to this who are like, yeah, look, I a friend made a cloth mask for me, or I have a buff that I use a lot during the winter for skiing. And that's what I'm using when I'm going to the grocery store or the bank or whatever. I wonder if you would be able to share some parameters or statistics about filtration. What kind of range or what kind of efficacy, if I'm throwing on a very, very thin buff and using that as a cover, like, is the type of material the most important factor is the thickness of the material the most important factor like what should we know about this and maybe this relates to some of the testing you did and what you found out yeah definitely and i think one of the important things first of all buff is a competitor of ours our product that competes is called the uber tube so you'll probably hear us use that term instead of buff but it's a little like kleenex and coke it's become a you know ubiquitous term so one of the first things i'd say and we're not trying to bash competitors we make one just like a product just like that. And I think they've now released some, some updates about their products. Um, there was a really interesting study as well that came out recently that a lot of people have been referencing. I know the AP picked it up and spread it pretty wide, which is out of Duke University. And they did some really interesting, quite honestly, I love it. It was a low-tech solution to a high-tech problem. The study apparatus was a cardboard box and a mirror and a flashlight and a phone camera. So it was pretty simplistic. They, they showed the different efficacies of different types of masks. And unfortunately, they proved that that neck gaiter style buff or uber tube as it is known to us, frankly, is one of the worst things you can do. And in many cases, is worse than wearing no mask from a, from a transmission standpoint of your droplets. And that really thin material, uh, the study was starting to show, breaks larger droplets into many much smaller droplets. And because that material is thin and easy to breathe through, which is great for the wearer, you're expelling those smaller, more aerosolized droplets in a higher fashion. So I would implore people listening to this podcast, um, that's probably not the best choice for you if you're in an enclosed people population rich environment from, from a keeping your germs to yourself mentality. One of the things that makes our mask so interesting uh, to the consumer is that it was born and bred through our PPE product projects that we're making now and had to go through some testing. So there is sort of a scale of protection all the way from the bandana you may have wrapped around in the early days to the basic cloth masks you can buy in your grocery store to many of the products that our our companies in the outdoor industry are producing to what I would believe I think Kat would agree our mask and then into the actual medical side. 
Um, they did show in that same Duke study that if your average cloth face mask, sort of cotton-based face mask, which you can buy in grocery stores, you can make it yourself with limited ingredients, is about as good as your, your ASTM level surgical mask from a basic expulsion and capture of your, um, of your droplets. So that gets us to that medical side. So one of the things that makes our product so interesting is that we've held ourselves to much higher standards as it relates to the medical side and to the filtration efficiency and some of the other testing because we're actually quite familiar with the medical uh, related industry tests for a face mask. It's also a, a, probably a good point for us to mention the difference between a mask and a respirator. And this is really sort of challenging for many people to wrap their heads around and you hear us talk about fit and a tight, close fit. We've gotten about the best we can short of a full-blown respirator. So the real difference between the two is the amount of air that leaks around your mask. A medical PPE respirator, um, which is usually approved by a, a government body called NIOSH, the National Institute of Safety, Occupational Safety and Health. And that measures the amount of air that escapes around that mask. It creates such a tight seal, the only way for air to get in is through the filtration media. Everything else is just a face covering. So our mask is held to that medical standard and that medical standard is ASTM F2100 2019. That's a mouthful. It's an ASTM standard and it, it, it encompasses a whole bunch of different tests. Um, and Filtration efficiency is one of them. And Kat mentioned earlier, one of the great stats about our mask is that it protects you and has a filtration efficiency of 95% for bacteria, particles, and viruses. That testing, unfortunately, is complicated because you have different sizes of particles. And then you have those particles that are mixed in with saliva, with water, with moisture, with humidity that becomes an aerosolized droplet. So the filtration technology, the methodology for filtering out that air becomes very difficult based on the amount of oil present, whether it's moisture, and then the size of that particle. The ASTM standards measure um, 3 micron and 0.1 micron, which is kind of the sides of it. And it's a bit of a weird chart. If you're a data sort of science nerd, I would encourage you to Google something called the most penetrating particle size. If I tell you and ask you this question, what, what do you think logically would be the harder particle to filter out? Three micron or 0.1 micron? 0.1. That's what you would think. The answer is they're both actually really difficult because they are captured by different ways. So now you get to this other more difficult question, which is, okay, how about 0.3 microns and 0.1 micron? 0.1, but you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, you, you've done this a few times. It's 0.3. 0.3 micron is the most penetrating particle size. There's four physics principles involved with capturing particles, and 0.3 is the magic size that is the hardest to capture by all four of those methodologies. So that's where you start getting into the differences between 95% um, of capturing and an N95 rating, which is only certified through NIOSH. An N95 rating is one of the best ratings available on the market. Our mask is 95%. It's not an N95. Ours captures 95% of that 3 micron and that 0.1 micron size, but an N95 captures 95% of 0.3, which is the hardest size to capture. So it's, it's really difficult. And I think that this is a moment in America in, where our sort of stratified different industry bodies came up with a system that worked. And now we're getting to a point where it's like, hey guys, that's misleading to the average consumer who doesn't understand the differences and the subtleties of these different tests and particle sizes. Like, I don't, that's, that's too much for me. Tell me what I'm supposed to wear. I think we're going to see some really interesting change in that side of the industry soon 
to make it an easier standard and to make it a more aligned testing protocol so that it's easy to walk up. Intrinsically, Americans, humans understand bigger numbers are better. We're kind of trained to understand that unless you're into golf, I guess. So you hear that and you say, wait, 195 and 195, what's the difference? And that makes it difficult. Our mask will achieve uh, essentially an ASTM level one standard, which is a medical test, but we fail one of the tests, uh, test methods within that package to qualify. And that becomes another complicated story. Um, we, we have a problem with, with synthetic uh, fluid resistance. So it's a blood test. And obviously for the average American consumer buying our masks, you don't really care about getting shot in the face with blood the way a medical personnel does. So we didn't qualify for an ASTM level one certification, but from a filtration efficiency, which is what you care about, it meets or exceeds that standard. And that's because we're so familiar with that test protocol through the actual PPE mask products intended for medical use that we do produce. Just to make sure I'm tracking you. So the, the fabric, the outdoor research fabric face mask, the commercially available product that by the way, I've been using now for probably about six weeks, I guess. That's kind of been my primary mask. You're saying that in terms of filtration, it's a very effective product. I shouldn't go around getting splattered in the face with a lot of blood. Yes, it is not approved for medical use. And the other really important qualification, which Kat mentioned earlier, and we should say again, our fabric mask is only half of the magic of our product. And the, the really filtration side of it are the white cartridges, if you want to think of it that way, is kind of the razor blade analogy, that are removable and replaceable that go inside the mask. The mask itself, just the fabric, does not have that high of a filtration efficiency, not to the 95% level. It's the filter media that you put inside that is kind of that magic sauce. And that's what's so great about our product is you have a washable, reusable face covering with the option to put in that filter that gets you to almost the same level of protection that you might find if you were able to get sort of medical masks. And that, we're, we're getting into that weird place where like, this is clearly not for medical use, but we're testing to those standards to exceed what many of our competitors and what you can find sort of at the grocery store and the hardware store today, we're making a superior product. As somebody who's been using it, let's see if I offend you guys with this analogy. I mean, <laughs> it almost feels like so you have this cloth face mask and then you insert very easily, kind of put in, it almost is a little bit like a coffee filter, like a, like a kind of paper or fabric-y coffee filter, I would say. And that's the part that you can throw away, put in a new one while you are not throwing away the fabric outer face mask itself. How, what do you think? How'd I do? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, our, our material is a little bit more engineered than a coffee filter. Just <laughs> go, just, just a tiny bit. I agree, on, but from, I'm, in, I'm into analogies and the analogy works. Yes, it works very well. The other thing that um, that is quite unique about our mask um, or the mask that you've been wearing um, is masks are a high touch item. So if you think about the, the mask that you're wearing, you're probably touching your face 15 to 20 times an hour on average, you know, between touching your eyes, touching your nose, touching your face. Um, so one of the things that, that we did to that fabric face covering portion, not the filter, is we, um, we added an antimicrobial finish a high Q and PJ03 finish in order to um, 
to make sure that the germs that are on your hands or on the surfaces that you put your mask on do not stick to your mask. Um, so we're, it's another added level of protection beyond the filtration that's provided by the, the fabric face mask itself, the filter, and then the antimicrobial finish, giving you that, that additional protective layer. Let's then talk a little bit about the like when to wear masks question. Um, sort of wearing masks inside versus wearing masks outside. And, you know, I still, uh, I'm out on a mountain bike ride and, you know, pedaling back to my house and I'll see somebody like trail running wearing a mask. And I'm like, I'm not sure that you need to be doing that right now, but honestly, I'm not a doctor. So can you guys help clarify for us? Let's just put it as um, current best understanding of sort of the when to be wearing this stuff. Again, we're not doctors. And again, <laughs> we would heavily recommend you to follow state, local and federal guidance. There's another interesting study out of the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center, which is based here in Seattle. Um, they released a preliminary study, hadn't gone through peer reviews, my understanding, um, on the transmission likelihood of COVID-19, suggesting that super spreader events, so one person that doesn't know they're sick spreads it to a whole bunch of people versus you and I pass each other on the street, um, are the most likely cause of transmission. And 80% of those who test positive, that doesn't mean symptomatic, but test positive, um, will never infect another person and won't pass it along. So it's a pretty sharp contrast to other respiratory viruses like uh, influenza. So it's all about airflow and dissipation. If you're in an enclosed space around others with, without a high filtration or air movement, you really should be wearing a mask. Again, remember that Washington State data I referenced, it came out literally this morning or last night about the mask mandate and how well that reduced the infection rate. But remember that it's, it's, it's a respiratory virus. So it's all about those droplets. And that's how transmission is generally gone through. So basic sanitization is key, just like presenting, uh, preventing the seasonal flu. The CDC and the FDA have a lot of really good info on their websites about it, so go ahead and read it. Um, just because the virus can live on a surface does not necessarily mean that that's been linked to show transmission. So I read something the other day, and unfortunately I'm, I can't remember the source, I tried to find it, that there actually have been no positive cases in the state of Washington, I believe, I think it was Washington, from surface to human transmission. It's all been human to human linked. That doesn't necessarily mean there weren't some, and it's not clear, but it's heavily indicated that like, oh yeah, I was around another person that had it. That's probably where I got it. Versus I've been locked in my house for four months, no idea where it came from, but I went out and bought, you know, someone brought, delivered groceries to my house. So regarding your indoor outdoor, uh, if you're indoors and you're around other people, wear it. If you're outdoors, I think the basic social distancing rule still applies. If you're going to be in close contact with others for a prolonged time, it's better safe than sorry, mask up. Um, if you're walking your dog and you're not going to come within six to 10 feet of another person the entire time, maybe you don't need to wear one. I bike commute and trans, uh, transparently when I walk my dog and I bike commute, I don't wear a mask. You know, I'm never around other people. Generally, I'm not in that much proximity to people, but I can tell you one thing, that mask is in my pocket. And if I come around other people, I stop at a red light, I end up going in somewhere. My dog and I are in close proximity to another dog walker, that mask goes on. And it very much depends on your comfort level and and also your your health and and your your in your immunity. I mean, I I think that everyone has to make a choice for themselves about 
uh, what is their comfort level in terms of distance to to others and when do they mask up i have a i have a teenager at home who is healthy as a horse who bikes to to his sporting events every day and he um, he wears a mask while bike commuting because he his comfort level is that he does not want to get sick and he um, you know and and it's very important to him to to avoid um, contagion in order to be able to continue to go to school, continue to be part of his sporting events. Um, and so that's a personal choice for him. Kat, that is a fantastic point to bring up. And by the way, you know, when I was talking earlier about I'm biking back to my house and I pass somebody who's trail running wearing a mask, you know, what I hadn't considered is what if they are somebody who has respiratory issues or is kind of immunocompromised and and I and I don't know that. And isn't this why it's so good for us to be sensitive to like if I have a friend who needs to stop by to drop something off or something, we always kind of have that like, how you doing? You good? What are you comfortable with? But I I frankly hadn't been thinking about that when I'm passing the stranger out on a on a on the bike path or something it's like why are you wearing a mask right now dude i don't i don't really think you need that it's like wrong way to look at it and we don't know what is going on with them i think it's still fair to say this that if somebody is having respiratory issues or you know has immunodeficiency issues if that was me i'd probably want to have that mask on kind of anytime i was out and about right I think everybody has news fatigue these days, just broadly speaking. So, you know, I don't watch or follow the news nearly as close as I did in the beginning, but I can tell you one statistic I try to look at every day, every other day, roughly, which is what's happening in my state and what's happening in my county as relates to the infection rate. That gives you that good pulse to know, hey, things are on the decline. We're doing a good job. What we're doing works. What I'm doing seems to be appropriate. If you're in a place where the infection rate is doubling or tripling in a weekly uh, weekly time period like be safe just put it on it's just there's really no reason not to when the science is pretty heavily indicating that wearing a mask in public in public not at home not in your backyard but in public makes a big difference to cut the transmission rate it's time to break out the crystal ball and i am just curious to get your individual senses of this or maybe you can speak in a way more generally for outdoor research just kind of where we think the world is heading here over the next, I don't know, three months, six months, 12 months. In terms of masks, I guess, do you think mask use will be more common than it is now or say less common? And let's give you the time frame of six months from now. So that would put us, what, uh, beginning of February? Um, yeah, so we're. I think we're definitely at a moment in time. Um, you know, we're we're all wearing masks. We're all trying to beat this disease, um, and inevitably, at some point, hopefully, knocking on wood, there will be a vaccine out there. Um, you know, and masks are right now a pretty divisive subject in our country, unfortunately. Um, although they are becoming more and more commonplace as more evidence is proving their efficacy and, and more people are getting comfortable wearing them. Um, so I do I think this is going away in three months? Absolutely not. Um, and we as a as a brand don't think that this is is going away as, as a trend. You know, we think that this is a this is a midterm 
um, thing that we're all facing. A whole generation of, of young people, including my kids, um, will no longer leave home without a mask on right now. And, you know, and they, they are very much traumatized by this experience of the last three or six months and, um, um, you know, and, and what they've had to face. Um, and I think that that will have a long-term impact on, on, on a generation of kids that spent their, you know, whether it's freshman year of high school or first grade learning from home and not being able to leave the house and play on a playground for for six months. Having worked in the outdoor industry for for over 20 years, I've been traveling to Asia multiple times a year. And so I have the experience of seeing how other places in the world have been dealing with mask wearing for decades now, during SARS, during swine flu. If you went to Hong Kong 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, or this year, you know, probably a third of the population is wearing masks, whether it's on the Star Ferry or on the subway. And it's it's pretty commonplace. You'd be amazed how commonplace and acceptable wearing face masks is in Asia on the streets. And part of that is whether you, you think you have a cold and you don't want to spread it, or whether you're immunocompromised, or whether you just want to don't want to expose yourself to other people's germs, and that's pandemic or no pandemic. And so we feel like this is going to become a tool in people's toolkit to, um, you know, to to protect themselves the same way that they might be protecting themselves with antimicrobial clothing or, you know, or, or just layering up when they go outdoors. I agree with Kat completely. I think that we're in a position where it's going to get colder. The regular flu season is going to come on. We as you said in the very beginning, we know so little about this and it continues to shift and change and the virus is what viruses do. They shift and change and they, they adapt. So I think that we don't know what's going to happen in the near future. I do think we'll get a vaccine. I think that will help. But even if tomorrow we said, hey, guess what? We have a vaccine. You know, there's a lot of time and there's probably going to be some politics involved in how long it takes for us and what the cost is to get that vaccine wide enough to really break the back of this virus. So I definitely think this is gonna continue forward. And uh, I I would agree with what Kat said around Asia travel and other parts of the world, you know, whether it's pollution or germs. I was in Asia during MERS uh, and some other things, and you see it all the time everywhere. And Kat's right, Star Ferry on the streets and the subway, the population density in some of those big cities that we travel to, it vastly exceeds almost any other city in the United States, maybe New York, San Francisco. There are certain parts that are that dense. It's very common. You know, in the beginning of this whole thing, it was, hey, do you have a mask yet? Now it's, do you have a mask in your work backpack? Do you keep one by the front doors or one in your car? Do you carry one in your little waist pack? Hey, I have a four-year-old. We have to put a mask in every single bag in this house. So we always have one for him. I think that leads you to just be like, wow, I don't have one mask. I have multiple. This isn't going away in three months. It's not going to change. Yeah. And when and when kids do go back to school, they will be masked up. I hope so. I really hope so. I guess I don't know if there's anything like a common practice right now among the schools that are kind of like right now trying to go ahead and hold classes if they are, if it is generally the case that if we're talking about an elementary school or a college classroom, if we are mostly seeing like mandatory masks when inside, I, I assume that's true. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really happy. I was involved, was involved, not a core member of the decisions that we were making around protocols for our building when we kept the factory open during some of the deepest days of 
the quarantine here in Seattle. And we didn't take those decisions lightly, but I, I'm glad I'm not on those school boards and in those schools need to make those decisions. But I think you've got some really clear examples today of areas where they decided to do it and it backfired dramatically. I can't repeat the headline on the air, but if you go and look for, I think it was North Carolina University's school paper and what they said after they went back to school, it was a pretty big disaster. My alma mater, uh, I've been somewhat working with my fraternity on some of their protocols and guidance as well, sort of as an alumni advisor. And um, the, the city that the university's in does not have a mask mandate. The university does. Our house is right across campus and is obviously one of those weird tweeners of is it on campus or not. And it becomes an issue for them wearing masks. And we're talking about college students. These people should be old enough and responsible enough to sort of follow the rules and guidance. And there's a lot of stuff in the media today, this week, that they go to college and it's like they're not following those rules. So yeah, I think that it's I think it's a bigger issue that needs a more systemic discussion and a systemic decision rather than these one-offs. Because when all these kids on college campuses get ill and the school says, oh, we're going to go to virtual, where do those kids go? They go home. And that just spreads it even wider. I'm glad I'm not making those decisions. And I don't, I don't under, you know, I don't assume that those are easy or that they're quick. They're painful and they're long and it's, it's really difficult. And I think that this is a moment in our history as, as a race that we're struggling with some pretty serious change. And as a mom of two school-aged children, I, I would second Alex's statement. I am so glad that I am not having to make the decisions for the schools about opening or or not opening. Um, but at least the schools here um, in in our state are doing it very thoughtfully and are you know are are taking into account the um, the spread rates and and looking at the the school body and making sure that um, that the kids don't come back to school unless the um, the disease is in control in the communities that that the school systems are in so we're we're all learning online or all of our kids are learning online right now until until this disease gets under control we are as a brand working on knowing this we are as a brand working on developing a kids face mask and so we're, uh, which we'll be launching this fall. Um, and it is very much a takedown of the mask that you're currently wearing. So the, the essential face mask with the same level of filtration, the same material technology, um, some of the same detailing. The only difference with it is making sure that it fits those smaller faces and that, um, that the ear adjustments are compatible with um, with child regulations so so we've come up with a with a different system for adjusting the ear loops that that don't cause choke hazards and are not you know and, and pass all of the all of the um, regulations around products for use by children but making sure that we provide the same level of filtration the same level of protection for for those kids that are going back to elementary middle and high school that that we provide for adults because that larger face mask, though it fits most faces, and I, I talked a little bit about how fit is important, does not really fit that six or seven year old. And um, and again, we spent we spent weeks measuring little faces. All of us have many of us have small children at home, um, and so we measured dozens of little faces and little heads to arrive at that standard, which was non-existent in the industry before we started. There are some kids masks out there, but there are no kids mask fit guides or 
or a way for a parent to know um, what size they should get for their kid's face mask. Um, so we measured many, many different little kids' faces in, in order to arrive at a fit that works for most kids. I want to ask you guys about this coming ski season. You know, I get asked this question a lot and find myself in this conversation a lot about do we think we'll have chairlifts spinning this winter? And I got to say, I have felt quite confident that, let's say, many ski areas or most ski areas would be spinning lifts this winter. And I have said that based on just this. One, it seems like my understanding of the science out there is that being outside in daylight is a pretty good place to be, you know, in a in an era of COVID. And I've sort of thought, well, you know, you do some social distancing and lift lines, maybe you're only loading every other chair, whether or not that would even be effective. And, and so maybe that would be an irrelevant part, but one could imagine an area doing that, you know, saying to only be riding chairs with people in your group or just riding solo. Like, I actually feel like that all it's pretty easy for to imagine those kind of tweaks and adjustments happening. What are your thoughts on this though? Do you have, maybe you have a different opinion. I was to say, it's all about airflow and dissipation, like I said earlier. So I think you're, you're outdoors. So I think you have a huge advantage versus playing a pickup game of basketball or something. So, you know, I think they're, you're already one step ahead. And most of us are, are skiers or snowboarders. So we are too holding our fingers crossed for, for a really good ski season and, and being able to have those lifts be open. At the same time, I think a lot of people, if the lifts are not open, um, have been picking up backcountry, um, you know, and side country. Um, skin sales uh, anecdotally are through the roof. You couldn't buy a pair of skins back in April, you know, because be because people are finding a way to be on snow, even if the lifts are not running. You know, would I want to be on a lift with a bunch of strangers right now? Yeah, probably, you not. Know, probably not. Probably not. Or gondola? Probably not. Uh, but there are ways to, you know, to cover yourself in, in that situation. And in fact, you know, in that in that cold, having a face mask on might not be that uncomfortable. It might actually keep you nice and warm. Um, we are in in thinking of um, ski season, we're we're planning some products that will be um, that will be exactly for that end use. So we are looking at retrofitting our balaclavas with a filter pocket to be able to use that same filter that you're using in your face mask inside of your balaclava so that you have that filtration on on a balaclava on a really cold day, which I think will will help people be out there, you know, in the cold and in the snow and still be enjoying the outdoors in the era of COVID if there isn't a, um, a vaccine by then. Um, we're looking at, at, some, at some other face covers that are not specifically masks that are helmet compatible and a little bit warmer so that you can wear them um, in the outdoors in the winter. So we're definitely prepared for that. We're, you know, we're in this for the, for the at least the mid-range haul until there is a vaccine out there and and we'll be outdoors i know i'll be skiing this winter whether the lifts are going or not i i i will be hiking up that hill with my skis well alex and kat i really appreciate the information here i hope this was a good kind of state of the union and kind of a you know hopefully 
helps clarify some best practices for people out there. So I think this was pretty valuable. Um, first question, if people are interested in checking out and maybe picking up the outdoor research, I keep calling it the fabric face mask. The name is the essential face mask kit. Where are these being sold in stores right now or online or how would people find these? They are. So you can obviously go to outdoorresearch.com and find them online. Um, we are selling them at REI. Um, we're selling them on Nordstrom.com. Um, and, um, and there are a couple of other retailers that are picking it up across the country. But REI or our website are the, I would say, the easiest places to get them right now. Your, your local outdoor store, depending on where you live, might have them as well. Yeah, it depends if they're open and all that kind of good stuff. But that's a great place to start. You know, obviously in this whole crisis, we, I think we all are shopping local a little bit more. So it's great to try there first. But yeah, Kat's right. The best place to find it if you can't get it locally is through our website. When you guys get these kind of more winter specific face masks or uber tubey things going, um, send me one. Um, we're actually in the process of sampling them right now. And again, with that iterative design process, we're getting some samples, getting them on people, trying them out, fitting them um, and perfecting. But when we get to a place that is uh, that is shareable, we will definitely send you one. Okay, deal. Alex and Kat, really, thank you for the conversation. Uh, I appreciate it. And I'm going to let you get back to uh, inventing products we probably should be wearing for the foreseeable future. So Thanks for what you're working on. Thanks for sharing what you've learned in the process and look forward to the next conversation. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to chat today. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so this is the spot where we talk about what we're celebrating this week. And I am recording this on Thursday evening now, August 27th. And honestly, this has been a really rough week to feel very celebratory here in the United States. Things are messed up. Things continue to be messed up. We still have cops killing black people, murdering black people, and very, very little seems to have improved since George Floyd was murdered what feels like forever ago by police officers. And I have to admit, I honestly felt very confident that in the wake of that tragedy that we were going to see swift and significant changes and a swift decrease in this use of deadly force by some police officers when deadly force was not needed and was not called for. But literally almost every single day since the George Floyd murder, it is happening, and it is happening again, and again, and again, and this is appalling and unconscionable, and it is just a massive stain on our modern American system. And so, frankly, right now, it is far too little, and it is far too empty to say that we can and we must do so much better. Those things are true, but frankly, that is just insulting to say right now. We need law enforcement. Those individuals who have pledged to protect us and to serve us, well, we need them to protect and to serve all of us. What we clearly need is an overhaul of the entire system. I do personally think that we should thank and uphold and promote the best men and women in the police force. 
And we need them and we need police unions and we need all of our politicians to remove the policies that would either encourage or protect those officers who continue to use excessive force in any case, and certainly if and when they continue to shoot and kill people who are not posing an immediate threat. And honestly, for all of the major challenges and problems that we are currently facing in this country and around the world, one problem that we should not still need to be dealing with is the daily issue and occurrence of police officers killing people, often black people, who pose no immediate or direct threat. It is abhorrent and it is criminal. Now, certainly not all cops are criminals, but too many cops are because we cannot tolerate even one police officer exercising excessive or deadly force. That is murder, that is criminal, and right now we are seeing that the number of officers doing this is definitely higher than one. So this week, I'm not really ready to celebrate anything, but I will raise my glass to the individuals out there who are trying to make a difference. And I do know that some of you are out there and we need to support them. And above all, we have got to end this now.